and welcome to Classically Trained, the podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident ancient Greek literature specialist and language person-ish. And I'm Allison, um, and I've got a background in Roman archaeology and late antique studies. And today we are discussing Doctor Who, specifically the... um, like new who rebooted episode re- rebooted uh versus classic who which is also a rich text for us but um we decided to restrain ourselves to the the modern stuff for for today <laughs> yes yes we did and yes i i love doctor who i'm very excited how, how are you feeling julia i i am also excited to talk about this um yeah i mean this is like so uh, I guess on the on the one hand, this is kind of spoilers because we we'll, we'll do our did you like it um, like kind of you know once we get in, but um, we are so similar to our supernatural episode. We are uh, doing three individual episodes of this television series. Um, so I guess we'll probably did you like it about each one individually as we get to them um and similarly we will do recaps individually as we get to them also um sorry just like disclaimer because i can fucking hear her making noises um i i got a cat between when we recorded the last episode and when we recorded this one and i love her dearly but she is a cat and will probably be making some noise in the background so apologies in advance if she's on the recording (laughs) so our third podcaster is the cat She'll make her opinions yeah. known. Yeah. Um, I I would say special guest, my cat, Mona, except she's not a special guest because she will just be here for probably all of them going forward unless, I don't know, unless unless we like record an episode when I'm home for Christmas in Vancouver or something like that. But we probably won't do that. So, you know. Um, Yeah. So I don't... Do we have any other, like, housekeeping stuff to talk about before we launch in, or should we just get in? I don't think so. Yeah, because we, I guess we're going to do this episode by episode. So let's get started. What episode do you want to start with? I mean, I guess we should probably go chronologically in order of, like, when the episodes were released. Um, Particularly, I have some opinions about the way that the, the way that Doctor Who handles, um its classical material has like evolved over time or like in the way that it changed from era to era. And I particularly want to talk about the contrast between the oldest of the episodes we're going to talk about and the newest. Um, I, I have some like commentary about that. So see, I get to me, that would make sense. That's but big, up to you. That's I don't know. what do you think? That's big brain. I hadn't thought about that at all. So yeah, we should do that. I like watch these in the opposite direction just because I felt oh. like it, I guess. But, like, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, I've got notes I mean, on all of these. So, uh, yeah, let's start with Fires of Pompeii. Yes, yes. So we are starting with um, Series 4, Episode 2, The Fires of Pompeii, which is, I mean, okay. So I will summarize the episode. I wrote some summaries. So uh, Series for episode two, The Fires of Pompeii. 
the tenth doctor, so this is um, David Tennant, for those who are less familiar, uh, and his companion Donna arrive in Pompeii, the city of Pompeii, in the year 79 uh, CE, uh, AD, referred to as AD on the show. They don't immediately realize the date and, in fact, don't even realize that they're in Pompeii. Um, They spend some time exploring the ancient Roman city before realizing that they are in Pompeii. And, in fact, they are in Pompeii the day before Mount Vesuvius is set to erupt. Donna immediately decides that she wants to try to warn people, tell them to evacuate the city. But the doctor insists that the eruption um, is, quote, a fixed point in history and that they can't really do anything to prevent it or or help anybody. Um, However, they are unable to escape from the city and the time period because uh, whilst they were exploring, an unscrupulous stallkeeper has sold the TARDIS to a local wealthy marble salesman by the name of Caecilius. On investigating Caecilius and his family, the doctor and Donna discover that Caecilius' daughter, Evelina, has prophetic gifts gained, um, apparently, from breathing in volcanic fumes through a vent in the floor. And, in fact, that all of the seers, augurs, and prophets in the city have been telling true futures about everything as of late, except about the volcano, which nobody has foreseen at all. The Doctor ends up teaming up with Caecilius' son, Quintus, to do um, some investigation, and they discover that a local auger has been building some sort of electrical circuit. Um, And uh, when they get caught snooping about in the auger's house after dark, uh, this guy summons a giant magma monster to kill them. Uh, In the chaos of fighting the monster, Evelina kidnaps Donna on behalf of a mysterious sisterhood of, uh, I don't know, priestesses, I guess, the Sibylline Sisterhood. Uh, Whilst rescuing Donna, the doctor forces the mysterious high priestess of the Sibylline Order to reveal that she is uh, a weird stone monster herself that she has turned to stone and is apparently possessed by a creature called a pyrovile. The Doctor and Donna escape with the help of a handy water pistol, and as they flee into the heart of Mount Vesuvius, they discover that there is a Pyrovillian craft that had crashed there. They hide inside the ship, and once they've learned that the Pyroviles intend to destroy the Earth, they make the difficult decision to force the eruption of Vesuvius, killing thousands but saving the planet. The Doctor and Donna flee, returning to the TARDIS, and at the last moment, Donna manages to convince the Doctor to rescue Caecilius and his family from the eruption. And that's what happens in the episode, The Fires of Pompeii. (laughs) So, do you like this episode, Allison? I enjoyed this episode, yeah. It's definitely not, like, I wouldn't say it's one of the prime David Tennant episodes, um, or even, like, a, like prime donna episode but it was a good episode um it's definitely starting to um it's definitely starting to uh be influenced by russell t davies late russell t davies syndrome wherein things get a little bit unhinged (laughs) because there's reference to his future completely unhinged end of season dr donna hybrid situation (laughs) But um, oh, it's yeah. pretty good <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, like, so I I guess I started watching Doctor Who in 
the 11th Doctor era. And so I went back and I've actually only patchily watched the 10th Doctor seasons and even more patchily watched the 9th Doctor seasons. I, I don't think I've ever sat down and like watched all of any season of 10, 9 or 10. Um, I've probably watched at least a whole season of 10, but not like in order. So my sense of the like eras and the evolution of the writing in this period of Doctor Who is quite rough. So um, I will rely on you for, for that. Okay. Uh, but I think Donna is, I mean, Donna is by far my favorite 10th Doctor companion. I love all of the Donna episodes. So, and, and this was actually one of the first episodes I ever watched. It was like quite early for me. So I have a lot of affection for this episode, even though it is in fact unhinged. I mean, Catherine Tate is always great. She's fantastic. I think in this episode, oh, she, and- she's really funny, but she also really, she does like the, the drama really well. And she plays into like yeah. the, the contrast between hardened doctor and like fresh human on the TARDIS. Um, I think she does a really good job. Yeah. So yes, it is always yeah. a joy to watch well, Catherine and, Tate. I mean, Catherine Tate and David Tennant are both amazing actors and they are, their chemistry is fucking unreal. Oh yeah. Well, no, cause they, they've done other stuff together. Other non-Doctor yeah. Who stuff earlier. Uh, None. Their their much ado is their much ado is back on YouTube. Oh, it's on uh, YouTube. Oh, I need to watch that. I had a friend who went to that live. It keeps getting taken down, but on and off it gets re-uploaded by people because it keeps getting taken down. But yes, it is on YouTube, and um, yeah, I I haven't watched all of it, but I've seen clips from it, and yeah, the two of them are just unreal in, um, in the way that they play off each other. Um, and yeah, Donna's character is great because she's this kind of she's kind of histrionic, but like in a really genuine way whereas the doctor is like stone cold. Yeah. Um it's it's interesting. I have I have some comments about like I mean, I have some comments about the three doctors that that we have across these these three episodes that we're going to talk about cuz we're going to talk about 10 and 11 and 12 and like I'm of the opinion that like I mean, I'll just say this now and we'll come back to it. I'm of the opinion that 10 is nice but not kind. And 12 is kind, but not nice. And 11 is just fucking kind of mean and weird. All of these are accurate assessments of, <laughs> of what's happening with the doctors. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess I should say my history with Doctor Who, which is that I, I love Doctor Who and I've watched all of it. Um, I also started watching a uh, beginning with Matt Smith. And so, yeah, I, uh, and so I went back and rewatched seasons one through four. Um, I will say David Tennant is actually my least favorite doctor. That's not to say that I don't really mm. enjoy David Tennant. All of the actors, they always choose somebody fantastic to play the doctor. They, they've they never had a bad choice. But I think this is maybe one of David Tennant's, like Doctor Who, I think is actually one of David Tennant's weaker performances. Um, and I don't know if this is to do with directing. It might be, but he's very over the top. What I, some people like, but I think it's, I, in my personal opinion, it's a little bit much. So, but again, I still really, really enjoy his performance as a doctor, but that's my kind of like critique. I think everybody's performance is over the top as the doctor. It's just, it's really noticeable with David Tennant because he's usually fairly subtle. Like his 
performances are very strong, but he's usually a little more toned down in the way that he does stuff. And so it does stand out that he's so, like, aggressive in this role. But, I mean, like, I think about him as, like... Have we managed to go a single fucking episode without bringing up Harry Potter? However, he is in one of the Harry Potter movies and he's quite good in it, but he's also quite over the top in that role. And I think it is on purpose. Yeah. Um, And I think that it's on purpose with the 10th Doctor as well, because, you know, the Doctor is such a character. And, like, I think anybody who plays the Doctor is going to do too much on purpose. I was having that thought about Matt Smith as the 11th Doctor when I was watching the next episode that we'll talk about, which we'll get to in a minute, um, that like, oh my God, he is simply doing so much in that performance. And it's like a little grating. (laughs) Really? Because I feel the opposite way about that. But I'm very like emotionally attached to Matt Smith. So I feel like he might not be as grating because of that. Because yeah, I never find his performance grating at all, I don't think. So that's interesting. I don't I don't know if I've heard that before, but I can see where you're coming from. I didn't find him to be that way when I was first watching it when I was a teenager. And now going, looking back, I'm like, why the fuck is the 11th Doctor like that? Oh, so much. Yeah, well, I get, yeah, we can get into this later. But yes, he really yeah. is watching it as an adult. It's like, wow, he really is like that. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of actors and acting in Doctor Who, I think to get back onto the topic of the Fires of Pompeii specifically, I think it's worth pointing out that Karen Gillan and Peter Capaldi are both in this episode. So this this episode should be called Scottish People Who Are Later uh, Significant Characters in Doctor Who. Karen Gillan is Matt Smith's companion in seasons five, six, and part of seven. She plays Amy. And then Peter Capaldi is the 12th Doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Or the or like maybe the first one, depending on how we're counting, how, how, we, how you feel about the numbering of the regenerations and the, that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. We don't need to get into that. <laughs> no, we don't need to get into it because among other things, 13's whole plot line made it obsolete. So it doesn't fucking matter anymore. No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we can stop worrying about it. <laughs> um... But yeah, uh, it it just was very funny to me. Okay, so I have like a couple, I, I don't know, I have a couple things about this episode that I'd like to bring up as far as like the reception angle, but um, I don't know, did you, do you want to go first or shall I? Well, I have some background, so I can give some quick background. So Vesuvius, mountain go boom. Um, the mountain did in fact go boom in 79. They also show in this episode a bunch of like little baby earthquakes that does actually tend to happen before eruptions that's not uncommon um at the same time they mention the earthquake of 62 and 62 ce and they say that that earthquake like woke up the beasts or whatever the pyroviles yes um i am an earthquake person that is my area of research however there's not really anything important to say here about earthquakes other than the fact that Yes, these are all things that happened and that make sense and that are referenced. Well, so, I mean, maybe you're going to talk about this, but a lot of what we know about the eruption of Vesuvius, at least in terms of on the ground, stuff comes from Pliny the Younger's letter about about it. And I, I believe he does talk about there having been some weirdness leading up, but I don't think he specifically, I don't remember whether he specifically talks about earthquakes in advance i think so i see here's the things i don't really remember Pliny the younger's letter because i was aware that 
a Pliny wrote something about Vesuvius, but I didn't have time to do the research. So I'm glad you remember this. I have actually read this recently. So Yeah. I mean, yeah. Pliny the Elder also, who's Pliny the Younger's uncle, actually like died in Vesuvius because he was like, oh, I'm going to go check it out. <laughs> so he did. And then he inhaled ash and then he died because he was interested in everything i guess he he basically wrote like an encyclopedia so he wanted to go check out the volcano and it ended poorly for him yeah i mean people don't really like know that they didn't they didn't know what the what was going on i don't know i sorry i i've just pulled up the letter let me just see quickly 24th of august one in the afternoon oh yeah so he doesn't relay anything about lead up and I mean, he's he talks about so he does talk about the the eruption and specifically um, he talks about the shaking of the ground in the aftermath of the eruption and how everything, you know, there was like a big earthquake afterwards and, and how everybody like everybody was really panicked and like it was dark and there was ash and, and fire in the distance. And like even even from where he was, which I think was kind of across the water from Pompeii, like it was big and scary and nobody knew what was going on. And so, yeah, like Pliny the Elder went to check it out and he like decided to take a nap on the shore and inhaled ash and died, <laughs> he, like suffocated to death in his sleep. It's like, well, uh, as far as ways to die in a volcanic eruption go, not that bad, but still pretty messed up. Yeah, because the, the thing is, is like the, it was a relatively well inhabited region. Like, so... Um, it's right by, it's pretty close to Naples, um, for like a sort of geographic reference. Um, and it was, yeah. And I think also like it was sort of an area that people had their, like rich people had their like summer homes, I think around there. Yeah. There were a lot of like summer villas. Um, it's, you know, it's a little bit further south than Rome. I'm sure the weather is mm -hmm. like nice. It's on the ocean. Um, Pompeii was a port. So Yeah. The other thing I had to say about the eruption is um, they mention Vulcan at one point, I think. Um, mm. And so, yeah. I don't know, I only was able to look into this briefly. So Vulcan was a, a god that was specifically worshipped around destructive fire, mm. whether that be like human made or natural, like an earthquake. And so as far as I understand is he seems to be worshipped to like avoid that, like, protect us from the explodey things or presumably you know like other fires and apparently he's worshipped from a really early time period in rome um and so there's some association with hephaestus but it's definitely not like a direct transfer it's like he, right. he seems to be a pre-existing deity apparently the word vulcan is not a latin word so he probably is a god from somewhere else but it's, it's not Hephaestus. He just happens to be associated with Hephaestus at a later date. Interesting. Because, see, that's what I knew about Vulcan is, is the association, the, like, syncretism to Hephaestus. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. And then I, I looked it up in my handy uh, companion to the classical world, which is great. Nice. Um, and, yeah, they, th what they sort of imply is that Hephaestus wasn't that close. Like, there wasn't that much... I think essentially that the syncretism is sort of overblown. I think probably, and I think this is probably true for the way the sort of like Greek gods get transposed onto the Roman gods. Um, I'm assuming yeah. that there was probably a desire to like match them up, even when maybe that association wasn't so strong in antiquity. 
Yeah, I, I do feel like there's a certain modern impulse to be like, oh, the Romans just imported the Greek gods and like this god is just like that god. But most of the time, it's actually not that direct. And in fact, I feel like the Romans almost did more syncretism with like North African and Near Eastern deities than they did with the Greek pantheon. I mean, not to say that they didn't do a lot of syncretism with the, the Greek pantheon, but like I feel like every time I'm in like an actual like upper level classics course and we're talking about syncretism, it's like Isis or Sibylle or like uh, Kibylle, like uh, not Sibylle as in the Sibyls. We'll, we'll talk about them too. Um, another person who, another per- another god who is syncretized is Mars, who was originally like a god mm-hmm. of agriculture in like the, I think like early, early period, like pre-Republican period. I think he goes like far back, but then later gets syncretized to a degree with Aries. So yeah, also, do you want to define syncretism? Yes. Um, so syncretism is essentially the, it's it's a complicated proce- process, but it's the process by which um, deities and religious practices become sort of conjoined or or overlapping in in cultural terms. Um, so and and how like deities become associated with one another. So so that you might, for example, like essentially be worshiping one with the cult practice of another or whatever. Like and and like names, different names become associated with similar deities. There's kind of a bunch of different stuff that might occur in a sync like a process of religious syncretism i think like there's there's multiple my my sense and having not studied this extensively is that there's kind of a bunch of different outcomes potentially of syncretism but fundamentally what it boils down to is like this is how this is how deities become associated with one another and and come to be understood to be the same potentially or at least able to be worshipped on the same terms if that makes sense that's my sense is it does that sound right to you Allison? yeah no that sounds right yeah yeah i didn't feel like summarizing it because i didn't want to so no no fair enough and and yeah and 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 it's it's really a lot about like identifying your gods with local gods yeah. when you know as the world expands um and by your i mean the romans the romans did a lot of this yeah um and you know yeah so another a quick note that i wanted to make related to vulcan is that at one point caecilius no sorry not caecilius the doctor says that romans didn't know what a volcano was <laughs> before vesuvius <laughs> Yeah, there's no way that's that, true. There's huh? no way. Like, that seems incredibly unlikely. Like, there's a big fucking mountain. There's a big fucking volcano right there that's been there for a very long time. It seems very unlikely to me that they didn't know, like, that that was a volcano. Or, like, what a volcano was. Yeah. So, <laughs> that seemed a little sus. On the topic of religion and deities in this episode, I really, there's some very cute references to the household gods. Yes. Can you explain what the household gods are to me, Allison? As if I don't know, but I actually only sort of know. Well, see, I also don't know that much about it, and then I meant to look it up, and then I didn't. Um, but the household okay. gods are gods in your household. So they show in the episode, like, you have, like, a little shrine where you, like, go and, like, worship your household gods. And that existed. You had, like, yeah. a little shrine for your household gods in your house. Um, the household gods were called the Lares and the Penates. I think, basically, some of them were sort of, like, your 
like ancestral spirits to some degree. So they're like specific to your household, as far as I understand in a lot of cases. And that's about what I remember about the, the household gods. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's also what I remember about the household gods. So yeah, that it's the Lares and the Panates and maybe... I think the Lares are your ancestral yeah. ones and your the Panates are your sort of more like guardian spirits of the house, question mark. But I don't, I just know that this was a really important concept and like it was a lot to do with like the constitution of your family, for example, was very involved spiritually with like, you know, you would, you would like... Like, isn't it, I, I seem to recall from something that I read in Latin relatively recently that, like, like marrying somebody involved, like, presenting them to the household gods and stuff like that. They're keepers of the family and of the household. Yeah. Um, I'm, but there's just, there's some very funny, like, stuff with them. Yeah. I mean, it is funny that they're, like, worshipping <laughs> Donna and the doctor. However... I yeah. mean that doesn't make any sense because you know they're not no. they're they're not household gods. Donna and the Doctor would never be household gods because they're not. Yeah, they're not familial deities. <laughs> and also, nobody ever. So to be clear, what Allison's referencing is that at the very end of the episode, we get like a flash forward to the family thriving in in Rome after the after the eruption, and and um, the son Quintus decides to go and and like give thanks to the household gods because he's like whatever studying to become a doctor now and um the plaque with at the altar has been carved with the likeness of the doctor and donna which like i don't think any roman art was really that specific about likeness and also how would they have i guess one of them drew them and gave them to a but like I don't know. It just didn't strike me as, as it was funny, but it's very weird by as by Roman artistic standards. I, I mean, think. you would. I mean, people were specific about likeness. Like that was that that would be normal, especially when it comes to like imperial people. Like you can identify mm. specific people. You can differentiate between like Augustus and Claudius based on like facial characteristics and hairstyles. And I mean, I think it's it's also like you would have sort of flat of flat relief like you see in the episode of like yeah. the doctor and Donna. like you would people would commission those like for example like that did that seemed right to me yeah on like a grave it's i think the sort of most common thing that i can think of is like a grave stele so like a grave marker um and of course like commissioning you know a relief as opposed to like a full sculpture is a lot cheaper and obviously you know if you're not an emperor <laughs> your um carvings can be a lot lower quality but generally the yeah. carving in sort of around like rome is pretty good quality whereas if you go somewhere like where we're going with one of the episodes roman britain you get the jankiest looking carbon carvings because nobody knows how to carve in like a roman style in in roman britain right so you get the stupidest looking carvings and they're really funny mm-hmm but yeah, that's, that's, I guess the other sort of religious things are, I've got like the Vestal Virgins written down and also the Sibylline books. Well, we can talk about the Vestal Virgins when we get to the, our episode with 12, because he mentions it. What? But the Vestal Virgins are mentioned here. Oh, are they? Yeah. I fully forgot. I think they're, but I think they're, they're just very relevant to the episode. Are they? Yes, because we have a female, we've got a cult of female priestesses. 
Oh, well, yeah. I mean, we could also talk about the actual Sibylline art oracle if we want to talk about female priestesses, especially in a prophetic concept. Yes, I don't know anything about her, so. I mean, I basically just know that the Sib... Well, okay, so here, I'll give a rundown of everything I know about the Sibylline oracle, which is that she exists. I don't think they were a cult. Like, there's the Sibylline books which are basically, like, the Romans had these, like, books that were supposedly books of prophecy written by a woman named Sybil. I think, like, like in mythologically, that's what they said, is they were written by an oracle named Sybil. Um, and so when Rome, something really bad was happening in Rome, they'd, like, pull out the Sibylline books, and they're like, what do the Sibylline books say? But I don't think there's any cult of Sybil. Okay, Sibyls are, they are like oracular, female oracular prophets who prophesied at various holy sites in Greece. Okay. It was like a term. Oh, okay. So, so there's probably something going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's, and, and I think, so, okay, so there's, this is, so this is what I understand to be the case is that, that, that there is some idea of, they can be different kinds of oracles, but I do think that there are, yeah, there seems to be some, I don't know, association with various female oracles in the ancient world, including, for example, the oracle at Delphi, though she, I don't think she was considered a Sibyl. Um, and it's, which is like worth noting because there's also some idea that as with Evelina in this episode, there's some belief that the Oracle of Delphi might have sat above like sort of a crack in the stone and inhaled the fumes and then given these incoherent prophecies, which I found really interesting that that's like a detail that they used because that seems to have actually been how it was done at, at Delphi. That's obviously in the Greek world. and um, But I, I do think Delphi was still an active oracular site for like a really long time. Yeah. So there's not really in the Roman context, there aren't really female oracles as far as i understand like it's not really a thing like I, that's definitely like a, a greek thing yeah we've got this female cult in here and so like the vessel virgins came to mind because even though they're not a oracular cult the vessel virgins are i think basically the only they're the only sort of female religious group or cult in rome that's like state sanctioned and so they were uh, priestesses of Vesta, who is the goddess of the hearth. And they were, they had like one job, basically, which is responsible, responsibility for keeping the like sacred flame burning. So they had this flame inside their temple, and they needed to make sure it was burning at all times, because it basically was sort of like Rome's stability was dependent on this flame. Um, so the idea of the the hearth is like, I think sort of the idea of like as the center of the home is the thing mm -hmm. more or less as far as my understanding goes. But a uh, fun fact is if the flame went out, um, <laughs> they were like, well, the Vestal might not be a virgin. So we need to bury them alive. <laughs> oh. So they did that, which is super, super fun, super good time. Yeah, the Vestal virgins are really interesting because... They have a really unique legal status as well. Um, so if you're chosen to be a Vestal Virgin, normally you're from the senatorial class. So you're like a, I don't know, it's essentially like Br the British nobility, except for ancient Rome, is the senatorial class. 
and you have to serve for 30 years and then you're a virgin but also you're legally separated from your birth family you're no longer on your under your father's legal power which is called potestas which as a woman needed to remain under i think basically as far as i remember you remain under your father's potestas until they die in which case i believe you need a legal guardian which is a little bit different but yeah as a woman you always or if you're yeah it, like or if you're married kumanu but that was kind of out of practice by this point but yeah you, like you were if you were a woman you were usually under somebody else's legal power so this is like these are pretty mm-hmm. well the only people who are legally not under uh, familial relations like legal power um which i think is pretty interesting yeah i mean the vestal virgins are yeah they're neat i guess the one thing that reminded me was that the daughter was sort of being like given away to this like order and that it's um like it wasn't yeah. a mark of status and so that the basically the only thing where that would happen in the roman world is usually i think the vestal virgins as far as I remember. But yeah, like having like little weird cults was like a thing in the ancient world. Yes. Like like today, like there's a lot of little weird cults. It's people like like doing the weird cult thing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, in conclusion. I have one, I have a couple of little petty things, um, but I have one slightly larger thing that I want to bring up about this episode that I think is worth remarking on, um, unless you want to bring something else Well, up. I wanted to switch gears and just talk about, like, Pompeii for a moment from an archaeological yeah. perspective, because in a shocking turn of events, <laughs> Pompeii is really important um, from an archaeological standpoint because you have preservation of moments in time like everything is more or less frozen in time whereas you know with other archaeological sites you don't get that because you know people abandoned the site usually only with a natural disaster do you have that sort of like freezing in time situation where you know you sort of have a complete archaeological assemblage you know which means like everything in that would be in the household was in the household although some people were already kind of on their way to fleeing and took some stuff with them yeah i i will point out this episode really purports that oh my god, like, 20,000 people are gonna die in this eruption. Um, That's just not true. Uh, I think there were estimated about that many people in the city, correct me if I'm wrong, Allison, but actually quite a lot of people evacuated. I have, I actually have no idea. I'm gonna take your word for that. (laughs) I don't know. I looked this up and I can't remember what what I found out at this point. I just, I just remember that, like, it's worth noting that this episode really really puts forth the idea that the volcano erupted and everybody immediately died in the fire and that is like simply not the case no quite a lot of i mean fucking plenty the elder had time to sail all the way over there and be (laughs) there for a while and then he died like yes i'm quite a lot of people did fucking get hit by ash and they were buried in the ash and they were preserved like in situ essentially because they died on the spot quite rapidly but lots of people did not yeah so my assumption with pompeii yeah because the thing is is pompeii is covered in ash so there are different ways volcanoes can like destroy a landscape this is pulling me pulling my my knowledge of volcanoes out of my grade 11 and 12 ib geography (laughs) um so yeah you have like you have ash and so like obviously the ash falls very slowly presumably people who died probably would have died from asphyxiation first not like being Mm -hmm. covered in ash because i think the ash comes down not that quickly 
And but then you have stuff like you've got stuff like lava, which doesn't really seem to have been much of a problem for any of the cities. But then you also have something called pyroclastic flows, which are basically mixes of like hot gas and like mud and rocks and stuff. And those so those are sort of like superheated and they move really quickly. And as far as I can remember, I'm pretty sure that's what covered Herculaneum, which is a different site is a different town very close to Pompeii that was also destroyed in in the eruption, but it has better preservation because of the method of the like way that it was buried. Um, sorry, a rapid Google suggests that they've only found about eleven hundred bodies. Oh, interesting. In okay, Pompeii. So I think I think my I think my initial statement there that 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 estimated there were probably about twenty thousand people living in the area is is true, but it's it sort of seems to be the case that um, as Pliny the Younger recounts in his letter. There was a big cloud and there was a round, there was like pumice rain, like there was, there was rock falling from the sky and ash falling, raining from the sky. But like that went on for quite some time before there was pyroclastic flow, which, and, and um, like magma and whatever, which obviously would have fucking killed people. But like people there, the sky was raining ash and everyone was afraid. So they left. Yeah, like I'm I'm pretty sure, yeah, in Pompeii, like it was just ash. I don't think there was anything else that covered people up. Like I think it was probably just okay. asphyxiation from ash. And then, yeah, the pyroclastic flows are what showed up in Herculaneum, which is, I don't know, how many kilometers away, 10 kilometers away or something. I have been to both places and I have been, been between said places on the train. But so that's my my memory visually yeah um, okay but um sense. yeah i don't think there was any magma flows that i ever remember hearing about at least not any magma flows mm. that fucked anybody up particular in particular um however i could be completely wrong i'm a little bit talking out of my ass right now so disclaimer okay but yeah it seems seems to be that the the episodes like emotional drama all hinges on this idea of like Oh, the doctor is willing to kill 20,000 people or let 20,000 people die. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, the doctor's going to let like a thousand people die, I mean, which is still a lot of people. But like relative to anything, frankly, relative to other shit the doctor has done, that's really not very many casualties. <laughs> You're not wrong. He did, in fact, kill his entire planet. Oh. Yeah, he fully killed every every other member of his race. Um, Some of those individuals he has personally killed multiple times. <laughs> I'm looking at yet you, the master. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the master has tried to kill him multiple times, so that's like completely acceptable. Yes, murder, I know, but but who's who's come out on top in terms of the number of murders committed, like mutually? There. Yeah, I. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Also, like, oh, I remember. Volcanic eruptions also aren't always, like, explosion, magma. Like, you can have a really, like, slow eruption. You have, like, different forms of eruption. So, yeah, like, there's definitely, like, a yeah. popular understanding of the way volcanic eruptions work. And so it's not necessarily, like, a really fast, boom, everybody's dead situation. Yeah, the, the term eruption really evokes, like, an explosion. But sometimes it's just kind of, like, an ooze situation. <laughs> yeah. This was not an ooze situation. No. But yeah, there's <laughs> but, <laughs> there's an in-between between boom and ooze. Anyway. <laughs> I did want to move also back towards talking about it archaeologically really quickly because I have a brief rant. So Pompeii, yes, very important. However, 
It's also important to note with Pompeii, there's several like problems with using its like evidence. The first is the trash can fire that is excavation at Pompeii. Um, so Pompeii was rediscovered mm. in the mid 18th century. <laughs> oh, fuck. So that's a real bad time for excavation. At that point, basically, you're just like, yeah, basically, people are just plundering, even though quote unquote, systematic excavation apparently started in the mid 19th century. Like, again, not great methodology, you know, sort of, you're getting yeah, basically, is kind of fucked. <laughs> is what I'm saying is it's not it's not been uh, excavated most of it hasn't been excavated um, using modern archaeological methods and thus you kind of have to take stuff with a grain of salt people are still excavating at Pompeii there's lots of actually stuff you can do at Pompeii it looks like Pompeii has been totally uncovered but that's really not sort of all you can do with archaeology like you know you can do stuff to answer specific questions and so you might excavate like under a floor to see like an older level or something so yeah it's it was excavated poorly. And so the other thing about Pompeii is I do not think Pompeii is that great of an archaeological site. Now, I might sound crazy, but Pompeii's horrifically touristy and the presentation of the archaeological materials is not very good. It's very sensationalized. Mm. You've got a bunch of tour guides who I don't think are giving particularly accurate information based on like snippets that I heard while I was like walking around. And there's also... I don't like the way that they present human remains. I think it's pretty disrespectful. Like you have these like casts of human bodies, which like are kind of interesting. But on the other hand, it is it is very like putting a like spectacle of human remains. And there's also like I went into the little museum that they have attached to the site. And there's a fucking like glass case of like filled with people's skulls. I'm like, this is uh. this is inappropriate. I do not like this. I mean, I'm a certified skeleton non-enjoyer, so oh. <laughs> I would I would hate that. But also, like on an ideological or like an ethical level, I hate that. Yeah, it's um not great. Whereas Herculaneum, which I was very lucky to have a study permit for, so I got to like wander around it a bunch and go into some places that other people weren't allowed to go, which was mostly crawling into like other rooms and houses that were like overgrown with weeds. So like nothing that exciting, but. I did also get to like duck under a rope to like sit on a mosaic and this tour guide was like, you can't be there. And I was like, actually, I can be here. <laughs> uh, like, You're not supposed to be there. And I was like, actually, it's fine. I have a permit. I literally have a permit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fucking Parks and Rec, I have a permit. Gift, but you actually had a permit instead of just a piece of paper that said I do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's the the presentation of the archaeological materials, which are actually like better preserved at Herculaneum than at Pompeii. Mm -hmm. Like you, there's wood. There is preserved wood. It is so cool. Can you explain for people who might not know why it is cool that there is wood? I mean, wood rots. In conclusion, <laughs> so we don't really have a lot of wood from the roman yeah. period i just think that's not that's not like necessarily obvious to people but yeah we have very okay. little wood and very little fabric from antiquity because ma organic materials rot which is why all of the antiquities you see are made of like marble and ceramic but um not everybody would necessarily know that that was that one like blew my mind when i was like a baby classicist and somebody was like we don't have stuff that's made of wood because wood rots in other places oh, in most places and weird. i was like whoa I, that wouldn't occur huh. to me like it checks like it checks out it's it's like yeah but it's not necessarily intuitive anyways yeah so yeah 
That is very cool. I didn't know that we had wood from Herculaneum. I, I kind of only knew of, I knew of the, like the Vindolanda tablets, which um, for those who aren't familiar, came out of a bog in Britain. But yeah, no, there's a whole ass balcony. Like, Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that is extremely cool. But also there they have like an area. So basically under the city, there's these sort of vaults, which would have sort of been part of the harbor. Um, I think they would have had like ships in them maybe or something anyway a bunch of people went under there to sort of like hide themselves from the eruption and like died obviously because it got all covered but so you go it's sort of like a separate area from the town which is i think is kind of nice and so you kind of go down there and they don't have the actual human skeletons they've got like casts of the skeletons so i think it's a much better way to sort of like present death and like allow sort of like people to like understand the the scope of the tragedy um, as opposed to being like, ooh, some skulls and people, casts of people's bodies. So that's my Pompeii rant. There are better archaeological sites, in conclusion. Valid. Well, thank you. I learned some things about Pompeii and Herculaneum. If I ever make it back to Italy, I will go to Herculaneum instead. <laughs> um. Okay. I need to bring up the elephant in the room, which is that this episode is about the Cambridge Latin course. What? Oh, Allison, did you not know that this episode is about the Cambridge Latin course? I don't know what that means. So for those who are unfamiliar, the Cambridge Latin course is a ubiquitous series of Latin textbook used in the UK and also in parts of the US to teach Latin to school children. Um, They are, I think, primarily targeted towards um, pre-college, like high school um, level. I think they often get used for for that level in in the UK where where that's more common. The first volume, they're very similar to a lot of other textbooks, um, which in insofar as the, uh, the textbook is built around a narrative which follows a particular family. The father of this family is named Caecilius. Oh my god. So the characters in the text so the characters in the episode are Caecilius, his wife Metella, his son Quintus, and his daughter Evelina. The characters in the textbook are Caecilius, his wife Metella, his son Quintus. <laughs> um and then uh there is no daughter in the textbooks. Oh my um god. instead instead there is the wife's uh the wife's slave whose name is Melissa, which is uh, very correct insofar as Melissa for the record, is a Greek name, and a lot of enslaved people in Rome had um, Greek uh, names of Greek origin. Also, it means B. Yes, it means it means B. Yeah. Um, or actually, I think it means honey. Oh, does it? I thought it meant B. Anyway, I don't know. One of those things is true. I'm not going to fact check in any case. And and the in the first volume of the Cambridge Latin course, um, they are the family lives in Pompeii. The only differing detail really is that Caecilius is a banker. And the book ends with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which kills all of the family except for Quintus, who leaves and then moves to Roman Britain. Given that we are going to get the next, like, the next, like, historical Roman episode that we're going to get is set in Roman Britain, I have come to the conclusion that British people don't know anything about Roman history except for Pompeii and stuff that happened in Britain. I mean, I don't think that's incorrect. And frankly, there's no reason why (laughs) British people would know. (laughs) I know. It's just very funny to me that, like, it's just very funny to me that there's literally, like, anyways. That's fucking hilarious. That's so funny. Yeah, this episode is fully just, like, what if we just did an episode about the fake Pompeian, like, wealthy family from the textbook that all of us learned Latin out of when we Uh, were 14? Yeah, because anybody who's in America and or Canada who doesn't know this, like, teaching Latin is a lot more common in the UK. And I think it, like, also especially would have been 
used to be even more common. And obviously the people who were writing these episodes in like 2008, 2009, I think it was 2008. Um, But yeah, would have grown up in a different era than us and thus probably would have been more likely to have learned Latin. Yeah, odds are odds are reasonably high. Yeah. So that is the thing that is worth knowing um, about this episode is that it's fully just about the Cambridge Latin course. I, you know what, this is, it, this would be like if, if they did a Greek episode and it was based around Dikaiopolis. Yeah, though at least Dikaiopolis is out of, an, he's, I think he's out of the Acarnians, like he's out of an actual Greek comedy. Oh, is he? I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah, because the story <sighs> transitions as, as you get later, because... At UBC, so where Allison and I did our undergrad, the profs are, like, not impressed with the late readings in, like, I, I feel like both of us had the experience of having our, our Greek professors, like, transition away from the readings in Athanadze, which is the textbook that we use, uh, as we got later into second year, like, in, in second semester of second year, when we nominally would have gotten to the fi- the very, very final stuff in the textbook. By that point, I mean, I had Toff, and he was just, like... We're just going to read other stuff that's more interesting. But what's in the textbook is, I believe, the Acardians. Oh, like, I think okay. it just becomes Aristophanes. Oh. Um, I might be wrong <laughs> about funny. that. Let me, let me just fact check myself real quick. I'm, I'm just going to fucking Google Athanase. But yes, it is. It is the Acardians. Okay. It would be like if they made an episode and it was just the plot of the Acardians. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, like truly fucking unhinged it's very funny though i think the last time thing i have to say about this which i'm assuming you probably have this this gripe which is like it's i don't even know if it's a gripe but like they didn't even try with historical accuracy they were like oh let's just put no. them in some things that were vaguely roman however this is one episode in a tv show that does not have the largest budget so like i can't blame them really yeah well and i mean both of us have watched enough doctor who to know that historical accuracy not their strong suit and that's not the point i mean there's aliens the point is the aliens <laughs> i will say though that um Caecilius's necklace is a crime and nobody should have ever put that like why add god why it looks so bad i mean the, i will i will say the outfits are not troy fall of a city bad so they get a pass for that. I just, I yeah. My my thing with historical accuracy, if it's not historically accurate, at least it shouldn't be ugly. And this one, like, kind of succeeded. Just a fun quick note, which I brought up before. Uh, Roman ancient clothes, clothing in general, did not have stitching. Um, it was just a bunch of draped fabrics that you would, like, belt together and or pin together. Um, also, that women would have been dressed a lot more modestly than is portrayed mm. in this show. Although I did think the bit where she's in, like, a teeny tunic and her dad's like, you can't go out like that. It was very funny. But that would be more like her going out, her going out with, like, a veil on. Which, yeah, like, women would have normally been, like, covered, like, head to toe. Like, you'd wear a little, like, head covering and, a, like, a little cloaky thing. And then your, like, dress underneath. Yeah. There's a lot of little cracks that are kind of, you know, like on the there's there's a comment about um, there's like a few little things that I was like, I don't know whether this is very accurate, but it's kind of fun. Like it's a fun little sort of ancient reference like the the um, the doctor asks the salesman how much he sold the TARDIS for. And he says he got 15 sesterces for it, which is my impression is that that's not a huge amount of money. 
Not for something like that, I don't think, during the Roman period. I mean, 15 sisters, see, like, I feel like it's a sort of thing where it's like, okay, well, if you're poor, 15 sisters, see, like, might be your, like, year's income or something. But I don't think it would make sense for, like, a giant ass, like, statue. I don't know. But I, I don't really have a good memory of the sort of, like, value of what a sister C is. So. Okay. And, yeah, like, there's, like, a few things like that. And I also love, and we'll revisit this when we talk about the the Eaters of Light, the 12th episode. Um, but the, the, the language stuff and Donna being, like, surprised that she speaks, that she's being heard in Latin is very funny. I don't know. The, like, language stuff around the translation um, the way that the doctor's like presence or the, the TARDIS's presence or whatever it is like inflicts auto translate on everybody is like very <laughs> it's just always a good gag and it's oh, no, especially it funny well and and Donna says like like Veni Vidi Vici to a guy pronounced like that yep. of course yeah yeah um for for clarity the Latin um in in like ancient Latin as opposed to church Latin um it's um, the V is a W, so it's Wenny Weedy Winky. <laughs> okay, so the next episode that we are going to talk about is uh, the uh, Series 6, Episode 11, The God Complex. So to summarize, the 11th Doctor, Amy, and Rory find themselves in what appears to be, but is not, an 80s hotel on planet Earth. They quickly ascertain that it's impossible to leave by normal means. In fact, the TARDIS has vanished. And they meet several other people who are also trapped inside this hotel. Um, Rita and Howie, who are humans from Earth, and Gibbous, an, an alien from a planet that gets conquered a lot. These, This little group of people inform the Doctor and his companions that every hotel room contains somebody's worst fear. The Doctor and Amy and Rory also learn that there is one additional person in the hotel, um, a man named Joe, who has already been exposed to his worst fear and has begun to talk deliriously about, quote, praising him. That is, him being the monster that is apparently in the hotel. The group flees from the monster, which has come after Joe to devour him. And whilst they are fleeing, Rita and Howie are both exposed to their own rooms. Joe is killed uh, and the doctor catches sight of the monster uh, and identifies it as a minotaur. Um, the party retreats back to a central room. Shortly after, Howie begins to praise the monster as well, and the Doctor sets a trap so that he can get a better look at it um, and speak with it, and he learns that the Minotaur is also a prisoner in the hotel. Unfortunately, Gibbous chooses to set Howie loose, and Howie is killed by the Minotaur. Shortly after, Rita also begins to praise him, and she chooses to separate herself from the group to die on her own terms. The Doctor is at first furious, but becomes uh, aware, he comes to the realization that um, his group and all of the others that they're with have been brought into the hotel because of their faith. Um, in the case of their group, it's specifically Amy's faith. Amy also begins to praise the monster at that point, and the Doctor chooses to break her faith in him in order to save all of their lives. The Minotaur is uh, defeated somehow by the loss of its food supply. With its dying breath, it expresses that death would be a mercy for, quote, an ancient creature drenched in the blood of the innocent, by which it means the doctor himself. And then a bunch of character stuff happens that 
is not relevant to the specific plot of the episode. And that's what happens. This is not a very classical episode, actually. <laughs> no, it's it's mostly basically that, like, they're using the myth of the Minotaur um, as a sort of, like, framework for the episode. Like, the Minotaur doesn't even really look like a man with a bull's head. It just sort of looks like a big yeah. monster. It's got horns. I will say that this was a, a good sort of framework to put an episode on because this is a this is a very good version of the Doctor Who the Doctor Who classic running around in corridors, yes, which is a very cheap way to shoot an episode. <laughs> so there's a lot of Doctor Who episodes running around in corridors. Yeah, though I will say that I think that first of all, there are many better Doctor Who running around in corridors episodes than this one, and second of all, like I sort of feel like it's a shame that they used the name the Minotaur or the Minotaur, depending on, they say Minotaur, the concept of the Minotaur for this, because frankly, you could do a much more played straight Minotaur myth in like a more interesting way than this. Instead, they just decided to make it essentially a bland, like, could have been any old big monster that just happens to look like a Minotaur. The only other direct reference to the Minotaur myth is that, um, so the room they use to trap it is like sort of a spa room. And um, there's, we get like one quick shot of a plaque on the door of the spa that says that it's called the Pacify Spa. And Pacify, um, for those unaware, is the name of um, the mother of the Minotaur in the original myth. That's that's literally it. <laughs> I will say I do actually like this episode. I also think the first thing is that it's it's really it looks great. It's beautifully shot. Like the direction is really beautiful. Um the the practical effect of the monster is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um this is one of the cases where people use too much CGI and they could have used CGI here and they didn't and I really appreciate that yeah. cuz this looks much better I think than a shitty CGI monster. So, and I think I think the horror elements in this episode are really good. I know you don't like horror, so I don't know how you found that, but... It's not too bad. This episode's like, I don't know, I really particularly don't deal well with jump scares. For hello listeners, I am an infant. Just so you know, like something <laughs> worth knowing about me, I'm a fucking absolute baby child when it comes to anything scary. Uh, but this episode is like... It is very well shot as a horror thing. I'm going to be honest, I spent a not insignificant amount of time not like sort of looking at the screen out the corner of my eye because I knew I would get freaked out if I was paying too much attention because the like the cinematography <laughs> in this episode is quite good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it really, this era of Doctor Who, I will say, what I will say about the Stephen Moffat era of Doctor Who, um, which has numerous problems, is it is... It looks so much better. It does look good. I mean, yeah, this is the thing is like it, it, they clearly had a better budget and they just were like doing more interesting stuff with set design and cinematography and like fucking color grading. I don't know. It looks it it, it looks good. It looks good. You're right. it, It looks really good. So I guess maybe we can give a quick minotaur myth rundown i have it written down king minus was a guy who was the king of crete and he um really pissed off uh poseidon by not sacrificing this dope nice bull that poseidon sent him um poseidon sent him it like as an evidence of his like divine favor and he was supposed to sacrifice it but he didn't because he thought it looked great um so poseidon was like fuck you 
and made his wife fall in love with the bull and they fucked and then Pasfe had like uh, gave birth to a half bull half man situation um and then this bull uh, is ravenous for human flesh so they have Daedalus who's like a famous Greek inventor who Minos had uh on retainer uh who had coerced on retainer shall we say mm-hmm. <laughs> um Daedalus built this labyrinth and they stick him in the labyrinth um and then um so Minos then has some sort of sort of authority over like Athens at that point and in order to like satisfy the Minotaur's craving for human flesh um the Athenians have to sacrifice a number of children to him every set amount of years um and so eventually Theseus um the king of Athens um son is like I'm gonna go kill this thing so he does but he he only succeeds because Ariadne Minos's daughter shows him how to like um navigate the labyrinth like using a ball of string um and so he Theseus yeets the minotaur and then uh, Ariadne comes with him, but because Theseus is a giant piece of shit, he uh, abandons Ariadne on Naxos, which is an island. Um, and then there's other stuff that happens, but that's the relevant bit. Yeah, she gets to marry. She gets to marry Dionysus instead, um, and then Theseus ends up married to her younger sister, and a bunch of other even worse shit happens to her because of being married to him. Um, basically, Theseus is a plague on everybody especially women <laughs> fuck theseus we hate theseus only slightly less than we hate jason on this podcast yeah yeah i didn't have any particularly super strong feelings about theseus because mostly i know that he dicked over ariadne i didn't know any of the stuff about how he dicked over ariadne's sister but also he accidentally kills his father because he has he has a like whoops moment and forgets to put up like the sails like he was like oh if I come back with white sails and that means I've like succeeded but if I come back with black sails that means I'm dead and he forgets to change the sails and so his like dad throws himself off cliff yeah Theseus what a guy um but yes he kills the minotaur I I do think so here's my here's my opinions about this so I I was involved in a production of a of a Hippolytus um play and we, we we did some work with the, the the minotaur myth in that play and and i it kind of got me on board a little more i mean this episode also had me on board with that a little bit and some other stuff but like it got got me really on board with an interpretation of the minotaur as sort of a a sympathetic figure um obviously like mm. he is a big monster but he is also like a big monster who just like was born how he was and then was locked into a fucking horrible like underground maze for the rest of his whole life and like the line that he delivers to the 11th doctor about like being an ancient creature drenched in the blood of the innocent and how death is a mercy it's like yeah like he had no choice but to be that it's like yeah. you know anyway it's just like an interesting it's just like an interesting interpretation of the minotaur and and like he deserves like hashtag free minotaur uh is what i'm saying <laughs> but also like i don't know and there's there's just been some good takes on the character of the minotaur in, in recent like media representation this one is an interesting one because like it really connects him to the idea of like faith and worship and sacrifice. And like, that's kind of a thing in, in the ancient myth as well. You could argue that like the idea of like 
having to sort of appease the result of your own mistakes endlessly with mm-hmm. other people's blood is like kind of an interesting concept and like you know in the case of this this creature like it's been locked away in this prison like it's not having a good time either and it's not its own fault that it has to kill other people to survive um and it's also like it i don't know like i i think this this i mean this episode does some interesting stuff with the concept of faith and uh, and sacrifice um you know the the whole thing with the character of rita who she's a muslim and like basically there's she delivers this fairly gut-wrenching line about how she wants to like she doesn't she she wants to be left alone to lose her faith essentially because like obviously she's having her real faith stripped away and transformed into faith in the minotaur so that it can consume her faith which the doctor hasn't realized until that point is what's going on but like it's it's the episode is an interesting meditation on that we all believe in different things, but that belief is fundamentally kind of the same from person to person. If that makes sense that like we all have faith in something or, or at least most people have strong faith in something. Um, It's, it's interesting because Rory, the character Rory, who is Amy's kind of counterpart as companion to the doctor, he keeps getting shown exits because he really doesn't have any faith in anything, which I'm like, I don't think that's, (laughs) I think that's a bad take on his character on uh, the part of the person who wrote this episode, but he obviously doesn't have what some people might call, quote, blind faith, which is a term that I personally tend to kind of take issue with. There's like some stuff in there that's like a little weird ideologically, but like it is an interesting episode and I just wish that they'd leaned into other aspects of the Minotaur myth more to do it. Cause I think there was potential and they just kind of didn't, they just kind of didn't. And now, and now they've used up the Minotaur, you know? Yeah, no, totally. That I, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, yeah. I, cause when I first watched this episode, cause I don't, I think I only watched it once when the season came out. And so I actually like, I actually really enjoyed this episode. I didn't think that I would because I didn't remember particularly enjoying it when I first watched it, but I was a little baby and didn't uh, have an understanding of themes, TM, in stuff. So (laughs) this is much more, like, interesting as an adult. Um, And is also, like, very revealing of, like, Amy and the Doctor's, like, extremely fucked up relationship. Um... And the sort of, like, result of that, which is the doctor's like, you need to go. I don't want to get you killed. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's funny. I I had forgotten how, like, self-centered the 11th doctor is. And this episode is peak. The doctor is super self-centered. <laughs> he's capable of recognizing that he's self-centered and that that self-centeredness gets the people around him killed on a regular basis. But he's also, like... I'm still going to keep, like, I'm just going to keep coming back to you unless you cut me off. So I'm making you cut me off. Like, he's, the 11th Doctor in particular is fully a control freak and also, like, really obsessed with himself. Which, 
I had kind of forgotten about. I like kind of remembered, but also, and it's under this veneer of like, ooh, I'm a kooky guy. And I had so much less tolerance of it for it on this rewatch. But I, I haven't watched any other 11 episodes. And this is obviously the end of an arc of the 11th Doctor coming to realize that he's super duper like this and that it's fucked up. So it's quite exaggerated in this episode, I think. So I, I found the character work in this episode kind of insufferable, but it's not a bad, <laughs> it's a good, like, single episode, I think. The thing is, is like, I, I don't mind that as, like, a, a characterization. No, I don't either. I just found it annoying. <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't find that annoying. But again, because I, I have fond memories of Matt Smith. Um, but in a shocking turn of events, Stephen Moffat's plot stuff is irritating. That's never happened before. Surprise, Stephen <laughs> Moffat, not good at doing character writing. Who'd have guessed? Oh, man. Yep. Yeah, I mean, because the character stuff in this is heavy-handed. That being said, Doctor Who character, like, relationships between companions and the Doctor is usually very heavy-handed. Yes. I don't think that's just a Stephen Moffat problem. I think that's generally how people tend to treat the Doctor. Yeah. Except for, I think Chris Chibnall does actually a pretty good job. I've enjoyed the 13th Doctor and, and that era, so. But I know a lot of people think it sucks, which I'm like, you're... I, your I, opinions I, are bad. I don't understand. But yeah, it's like you have the right to your wrong opinion. Um, yep. Certainly the 13th Doctor era is not worse than anything that has come before. No, it sure isn't. Every era of Doctor Who is different. And I yeah. think that it's worth pointing out that like, well, okay. Let's move on and talk about the third episode because I I have like a sweeping comment to make about the differences between these eras and how they handle classical reception and what that says about the era. But I want to talk about the 12th Doctor and this third episode first. The third episode we're discussing is uh, series 10, episode 10, The Eaters of Light. The 12th Doctor, Bill, and Nardole arrive in Scotland in the 2nd century CE. Again, they refer to it as AD in the show. The Doctor and Bill are involved in a dispute about which of them knows more about the Romans, and Bill is determined to find the lost 9th Roman Legion to prove the Doctor wrong. Bill wanders off to find the Romans and ends up falling into a trap after encountering a hostile local. The Doctor and Nardole, meanwhile, get captured by the Picts whilst wandering across the moors. Bill and the Roman that she meets in this trap hole uh, get attacked by a big (laughs) monster. And the monster uh, kills the Roman, and she ends up running away and flees into a cave, having followed the directions that her Roman compatriot gave her um, in order to find his few uh, remaining companions from the Ninth Legion. Um, In the meantime, the Doctor has learned that all of the rest of the Ninth Roman Legion have been killed by that same big monster. Uh, The Doctor and Nardole are taken um, by the Picts uh, into their village and then later to a gateway, which proves to be some kind of interdimensional time rift. Meanwhile, Bill is bonding with the Romans in the cave. Eventually, the Doctor emerges from the rift and says that by letting the monster out of the rift to fend off the invading Romans, the Picts have doomed the planet. 
Bill and the Romans seek a way out of the cave and are ultimately able to reunite with the Doctor, Nardal, and the Picts. The Doctor and Bill reconcile the Picts and the few remaining Romans, and together the whole gang hatches a plan to force the monster back into the rift. At daybreak, the rift opens and the monster, termed an Eater of Light, arrives. The plan is successful, and the Doctor decides that he's going to sacrifice himself by staying in the rift to fight the monster forever and ever, amen. But the Romans and the Pictish gatekeeper, Carr, go in together instead in his place, and the gate collapses behind them. The gatekeeper's brother then teaches her name to the crows, and the Doctor and his companions depart. That is this episode. Um... Yes. There's a few specific scenes that I want to talk about, but that that's the broad strokes. This is it's a convoluted episode. I have a question or two for you, yeah. which is that um, you hadn't watched any... Had you watched any Peter Capaldi at all before I've this? watched, like, the first th- four or five episodes. Okay. So I've watched a but, little yeah, you, bit of Peter it, Capaldi, but I didn't... I've okay. never met Bill or Nardole before. Okay. What do you think of Bill and Nardole? Nardole... I don't understand his deal. I, like, need context for who this is. <laughs> Bill seems like a pretty standard companion in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, both uh, of them have their, of like... Both are accurate. They, both of them have their, like, weird idiosyncrasies. It's just that Nardole is, like... Nardole is a Doctor Who companion who clearly has, like, a deal. Like, there's something going on yes, with him. He has He's, a like, very idiosyncratic. He's very, like... and And there's clearly, like... He's he's not along because he wants an adventure. He's along for some kind of reason. Um, whereas Bill is like a pretty standard spunky, like we're going on an adventure female companion who's matching wits with the doctor. And, you know, she's like here to help and wants to like, you know, she's got a good heart and, and this and that. So in yeah. a lot of ways, Bill is a pretty, she's not, I mean, she's not generic. That would be like a kind of shitty thing to say particularly given that you know she's the first black woman that we've had in a while and like also is a lesbian as did we learn that for the first time in this episode or is that something no no that's known like the whole yeah that's known from episode one she is a lesbian that gets talked about in this episode um which i don't know that we've had an openly queer companion prior to this I, aside from Jack Harkness, aside from Jack Harkness, who is who, technically I, an op- openly yes, queer but he's also like so. only he's only a sometime companion. He's not he's not yeah he's not a regular um, in the way that Bill no was. he's not a full time so. full time companion yeah um, he's a full time um, something. So context that I think is needed for this episode is that Stephen Moffat did not want to write this season. Um, it was supposed to go to Chris Chibnall because so Chris Chibnall was um, the most recent showrunner of Doctor Who. Um, mm-hmm. But Chris Chibnall was busy with Broadchurch, which is like an acclaimed BBC? Acclaimed yes, British drama. I think so. It fucks, by the way. Broadchurch, great show. It's really good. I, I've only watched the first season, but it's it's David Tennant, and it's like David Tennant at his best. It's an incredible show. Anyways, it's it's David Tennant, Olivia Coleman, and Jodie Whittaker. Yeah. So <laughs> Which is for, like, wow. And like, for, for context, the, watching Broadchurch... And seeing Jodie Whittaker on that show is why my mother then decided that she wanted to watch Doctor Who when Jodie Whittaker became the Doctor because she fell in love with Jodie Whittaker on Broadchurch. She is very good. She's very, very good. And I love her. Um, anyway, back to the episode. I don't I don't know if I have a ton to say about, like, the historical context of this. I mean, it's just, like, 
it's kind of just an episode that happens to be set in Roman Britain. Frankly, in a lot of ways, this episode could have been set in almost any time period. And particularly, I mean, any time period which has involves one person invading another, like one, what an empire conquering some, like some locals, because that's what the themes are. (laughs) But I'll give a, description of the Roman legion quickly and then we can come back on that because there is actually some interesting stuff okay regards to that yeah so we'll give some quick context um so a big point of the episode is like the ninth legion disappeared which okay so this is actually a thing that um I was gonna basically basically the ninth legion is a, a legion of the Roman empire that um it more or less like disappears in the historical sources so we like quote unquote don't know what happened to it and some author picked this up and wrote like a, his, a historical fiction book this uh, book about this at some point. I don't know, like I think in the fifties maybe. And since then, people have like really latched onto this idea, and it keeps getting used in like mystery, like or not in mysteries, but in in media. Like, oh, what happened to the Roman Legion? Like, it comes up mm. in um actually in the Percy Jackson Roman series <laughs> that there's like a missing legion. Yeah. Oh yeah, I vaguely remember that. Sorry, I haven't I haven't read the other one in a long time here's Olympus. neither have i we're um, gonna have yeah. to do it and also now uncle rick is writing a new one so uncle Wait. rick <laughs> that's what people call him anyway i know i just love it um but yeah anyway. so this is so that's why like this is the way it is is because this has become a topic that people have like drawn on of like what happened to the roman legion um so okay. yeah i wasn't like, sure it was, if that was like a thing yeah, it was basically, okay, this legion was stationed in Northern Britain, and then it stopped being mentioned in the sources. And so people are like, what happened to it? Um, so it might have, they might have gotten destroyed, or they might have gone elsewhere. There's not too much exciting to say about that. Mm-hmm. The other thing I will say is that, um, like, in this in this story, we have soldiers um, who are, like, different ethnicities. And it was actually pretty common in the Roman army for people to be taken, uh, be put in different countries than, like, their, like, their home sort of region for the, I think as far as I understand is for the, one of the reasons is, like, oh, then you don't have to kill your own people. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's not, it would be totally reasonable that you'd have somebody from Africa fighting in Britain. So before the little, I'm sure the little racist white men got their, like, panties in a bunch about that. But it is, in fact, historically accurate. <laughs> yeah. Also, sorry, there's, like, fully fireworks in the background. <laughs> I was wondering if that's what that noise was. If this ends up on the record, apologies. It is homecoming this weekend. And the Americans are doing stuff. So... Okay, cool. Well, that settles, like, the probably my biggest question, which was, is the Ninth Roman Legion a thing? Did it disappear? What is the deal with that? Because I've never fucking heard about this in my life. Yeah. The the other thing is, like, I have some quick Roman Britain notes. And by quick, I mean quick. I don't know that much about it. So I have, like, three points. Um, Which is that um, it was parts of Roman Britain, parts of the Isle were successfully annexed by Claudius in 43. Um, There was a number of attempts to invade what is now Scotland, and some of them made it pretty far north, but none of them really stuck successfully. So the sort of, like, Hadrian's Wall actually was, like, pretty well, like, 
as far as I understand, sort of kind of the permanent barrier between like the Roman territory and then the not Roman territory. Mm. So the the Scottish did be eating the Romans in conclusion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so the the Picts were like I I kind of vaguely know that the Picts were um and so that's who that's who they're dealing with. They're like pre-Celtic or something. He says something to that I effect. I don't know. They're they're yeah. an early they're an early like I don't know. I'm I'm not going to say indigenous because I I actually don't know whether they were an indigenous group but in any case like or if they were whatever like Saxon question mark um but they might have been indigenous in any case they were a very early British um civilization and and yeah that the Romans were like dealing with them um yeah and that they live in what is now Scotland yeah, they live um, in what is now Scotland yeah and they they did this this thing with the spirals uh that is are painted on their faces in this episode they all have these spirals painted on their faces that I believe is also fairly accurate to their art the way that they kind of made art of stuff um like i think that that is correct to yeah stuff that they did um but i it's I, this this is this is not my specialty by any means i also don't know anything about this which is slightly embarrassing because i did actually go to the university of edinburgh for a semester and do archaeology there but nobody brought up the pics so yeah well i think they're quite <laughs> i think they're quite early um, there, I, I mean, I think what you would, what you would describe them as is an Iron Age civilization, essentially. Um, they're an Iron Age European civilization, which is sort of like, yeah. Though I mean, they were pre still around. In yeah, it's, it, it's sort of like, but no, you still refer to it as like Iron Age, even though things are like around during like the Roman Empire. Like that's still within the bounds of the Iron Age. It's kind of a loosey goosey term, but. It's when iron shows up, in conclusion. <laughs> so it's about, iron shows up about 3,000 years ago. And then, you know, you sort of start getting Roman conquest about 2,000 years ago. So that's like roughly the time period we're working in with Iron Age. But yeah, I think that's what what you would refer to the, the pigs as is an, is an Iron Age civilization in um, what is now Scotland. I think it's an appropriate uh, description. Yeah, though they seem to be sorry, I've I've like looked this up. It seems like they are actually more like the immediate descendant of the Iron Age tribes. Oh, okay. So they're like slightly post, but yeah, because they were dealing with their like third third to tenth century is what this says. Um, third to tenth centuries are the picks. I I I don't know. So that's, this is, then this is technically pre, anyway, anyway. I, all I know is, look, they were, they were around in Britain. They were a distinctive British society. They seem to have been kind of come like a combo of a couple of tribes and they were a distinctive and relatively prominent society with their own like artistic trends and stuff like that. And they fought the Romans. Or the Romans talked about them, at least. So they were around. This is, like, correct as far as that goes. And, yes, I, I actually also knew that thing about the Romans stationing. Anyways, to get back to the Romans and, and the Roman okay. regions. So, actually, okay, to go back to this, this is wrong. 
what what is so i should have googled this basically yeah so the third to the 10th century is like not a time period where you're like anyway they're kind of like mixing up time periods here so like the civil if we're going based off of when the ninth legion existed this is actually too early for the picks the picks are okay. a little bit later, but only like a little bit later. So it's not like that off, but like the. Yeah. the well, and they might have also, I mean, if. I, so here's where I admit that I fully Googled this on Wikipedia. Like I looked this up on Wikipedia. Um, I mean, I am also looking at Wikipedia. Okay. So, but like for the sake of our viewers, this is what we're looking at. Neither of us are experts in this, but basically my sense is that probably the show picked the name Picts because that is the best for like a more general term for people who were kind of around in approximately in this region in approximately the right area. Um, even though the time period isn't exact because the Picts seem to have been maybe a confederation of a number of tribes who lived in that area rather than them picking a random tribe whose name probably wouldn't be recognizable to the average viewer. Like Pictish, the Picts and like Pictish culture, I think would be recognizable. It's like more recognizable at least. So I understand why they made that choice, but yes, it is wrong. Yeah, it's it's a little uh, reading this Wikipedia article <laughs> again. I'm we're not. I'm a classical archaeologist. I don't know anything about Iron Age Britain. Um, yeah, it does seem like so. The Oxford Companion to the Classical World refers to the people the Romans were fighting with as Caledonians. Um, okay, and so it does seem that. These are the picks are maybe like slightly later Caledonians. It's an it's like it's within a hundred years, so it's not that yeah. off. It's Though I will around say the right time. One of the things that was on this Wikipedia article, and this might be the other reason, is um, a picture of one of those stones. They made yeah, those the swirly very, stone. Yeah, they made these very distinctive swirly stones, and since um, the episode does some stuff with the stones, is like. Ooh, the stones are a gateway to another world. Like, that's probably the other reason is, like, they wanted to use the stones. And the stones were made by the Picts. So even though the Picts were not... It was like, you had to either attribute the stones to the Caledonians, who is who the Romans was actually, were actually fighting, or you have to attribute the fighting the Romans to the Picts. <laughs> and they anyway. chose the latter. I think the conclusion that we've come to is that this isn't quite historically accurate, but probably everything that's happening anyway is an oversimplification and that we don't know very much wh about what we're talking about. So yeah, and that, uh, and that in general, it seems, I mean, yeah, and that in general, like, I mean, maybe somebody who is more of an expert in like British antiquity would be grumpy about this. Um, I am not inclined to be super grumpy about this. Um, because it seems like they made the choice for a reason. And it's also honestly not sloppier than any other historical shit that Doctor Who does. It's like fine. Yeah. At least it's they not... picked the they picked the name and like relatively correct aesthetic of a culture that was actually around in like almost the same time period. <laughs> and I... like yeah. yeah, I mean I don't think it's like a big problem. The yeah, slight fine. historical inaccuracies are not, I think, deeply problematic in any way, shape, I mean, or form. So. They also they also declared in this episode that the reason crows say caw caw is because they're memorializing this one specific pict. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> as far as weird shit that the, <laughs> that this episode establishes about history, 
the Picts fighting the Romans is very low on the list. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, speaking of the Romans in this episode, uh, oh, I had one more question about Roman legions for you, Allison, which maybe you know. I mean, is 5,000 5, soldiers the right size for a legion? I know there's, like, different sizes of... Hey, I have it. no fucking clue, my dude. Okay, I am not a, right. I am not a mili- military historian. I fucking, know I Okay. <laughs> Neither am I. <laughs> I thought I'd ask. Um it's fair probably enough. fine. As far as like as far as like details to get wrong, frankly, that seems like one that would be relatively easy to look up. So I suspect it's probably right. Um just on the basis of like why would they simply pick a random number when it would be really easy to Google? Um but I am not going to Google it. I am simply going to choose to live in ignorance on this one. Uh, <laughs> add us on Twitter if you know, at ClassicallyPod. Um, <laughs> uh, the other thing is that I find these weird, chabby Romans so funny. Like, these, like, yeah. just, like, little... They're so 18, and it's very cute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shut up, Cornelius, in, like, a super British accent really got me. <laughs> I I do love, I do love that uh, they were, like, Romans don't have a conception of sexuality like we do, and we're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay, wait, okay, nice. wait. I, I want to, like, I actually, I want to, like, get in on that one. So let me, let me, like, explain. So what happens is when they're hanging out in the cave with Bill... Um, they like one of the Romans um, is like is getting kind of cozy with Bill and she is like she basically is like okay I know you might not get this but I am not into men and the Roman is basically like at all and she's like no women only and he's like oh so you're like whatever other guy um and just like gestures at one of his buddies and they have this exchange where she's clearly i mean she's clearly kind of like huh because she's expecting them not to understand the concept of homosexuality and in fact what they find kind of quaint is the idea of only being into one gender of person (laughs) um yeah and in fact the guy that she's talking to is like yeah, I mean, I'm, like, kind of a regular guy. Men, women, whatever. That's that's normal. But you're more like this other guy. He's, like, only into men. And his buddy's, like, only some men. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, they, they have kind of this cute exchange. And that seems to be, like, pretty... In certain ways, pretty accurate. Like, I, frankly, I think the only part of that that would have been alarming is that it was coming from a woman. Yeah. Because they tended, I mean, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans were pretty acknowledging of homosexuality as just like a thing that happened. And there weren't, it was very rare for anybody to hang their identity on being into their same sex slash gender. They didn't differentiate um, in the way that we do today. Uh, And, you know, particularly for men it was pretty accepted that you would probably have sex with both men and women um women's sexuality was more controlled of course and less talked about uh 
but probably it wouldn't have been alarming to a Roman that a woman might be interested in having sex with other women. Um, honestly, frankly, it's probably more alarming that she was that, but not married to a man also at her age. Like she's clearly in, I would say her late twenties or early thirties, um, which is, you know, getting on. Uh, and, and this was a society where like, as long as you kind of got married and did your duty, as it were, even if it required some, like, lying back and thinking about Augustus, then it was, like, <laughs> fine. Um, and so, like, it it was a very cute, like, it's, it's both very cute and also very accurate to Roman conceptions of sexuality. The only... They didn't have less stigma around sex and sexuality than we did. It's just that it was configured very differently. They had they had way more hangups about who was penetrating whom and under what circumstances and the relative like social class of the parties involved than the sex of the parties involved. I will say, uh, I at least to some degree, some people were making some comments on other people's sexual behaviors um in that there is there is a piece of roman graffiti my favorite my favorite piece of pompeian graffiti is secundus likes (laughs) to fuck boys which indicates that it was something of note that secundus likes to fuck boys so sure but i mean i i think i think the issue would be maybe the implication that secundus likes to fuck boys to the exclusion of anybody else yeah yeah you know like I, I, I genuinely think that this Romans this this little Roman guy, this like little centurion who is like, yeah, I'm normal, men and women. I think that's like pretty I think that's actually relatively straightforwardly true insofar as like if you were into boys, that's fine as long as you were also into girls. Yeah. Um, yeah. The issue was when you were too ex- to the exclusion of women as a man if you were to the exclusion of women into fucking boys, then it became a problem. Um, and yeah. of course, and it was a big problem if you, a man, were interested in getting fucked by boys. Because yes. it is very bad for you. At, like, it's very unacceptable to the Roman, to Roman masculinity to enjoy receiving, like, sex. It's to be... To be the receptive partner in a male homosexual act, um, whether that's oral, anal, whatever. Yeah. I I am reading Catullus this semester, um, and he is endlessly uh, derisive about... Uh, he, he, he endlessly uses the implication or outright statement that so-and-so gets fucked to insult his rivals um he lays and including on very like famous people he says it about caesar a number of times oh my god yeah which this was and i mean that was that was caesar's reputation actually julius caesar really yeah oh yeah um notoriously uh i want to say maybe plutarch um records that uh he was referred to by a political rival as as a husband to every woman and a wife to every man so I, I'm glad that what history has chosen to preserve for us about Julius Caesar is that he was a bottom. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yeah. And there's like a notorious, there's like a notorious story too about him um, where, that 
there's there was a song that was sang by his troops that referred to him as the queen of bithynia because notoriously he spent some time in bithynia in the court of the king there and supposedly spent quite a lot of time um on his back as it were <laughs> Uh, that that you know so so there's quite a lot of like this is actually a significant part of julius caesar's reputation and the thing that people used to slander him that he that he was a bottom um but and and you know catullus but catullus goes on about this endlessly and a lot of roman authors um i mean if if somebody's going to be slandering a man by calling them homosexual it's not just homosexuality that they're talking about usually in, in fact it will almost always be you are either pathicus or a canidus. You are a man who likes to take it up the ass from other men. Um, you are the receptive partner. You are weak. Like there's, there were specific sexual slanders for that. Um, that we just, they don't translate very well in English because we just don't have the, the concepts. Um, nowadays yeah. when we slander somebody for their sexuality, it's not, what is happening it's with whom um and that just wasn't really the paradigm in in antiquity or it was with whom only in the context of class for example yeah, yeah. there were of course a lot of other issues but yeah i mean suffice to say the romans were infinitely um obsessed with power in their sexuality and so gender not uh, or <sighs> the sex of your partner was not the immediate thing at issue and so yeah there was like a very cute i i just like it was a very cute scene with bill um and the romans where yeah she's like i'm a lesbian and he's like okay she doesn't use the word lesbian hilariously i almost wish that she had because it would have been very very funny if they had been like you mean from lesbos <laughs> Because we don't get funny. we don't get lesbian as in woman who loves other women for quite a long time. Back then, if somebody had identified themselves as a lesbian, they probably would have just been like, "You're from the Isle of Lesbos," I guess. Like, like how is this relevant? How is this relevant? <laughs> because among no. other things, I mean, Sappho was already very, very famous and even famous for loving other women. I think. Um, however. And, like famous as an erotic poet however there were other very famous lesbian poets um several of whom were men <laughs> <laughs> um so you know she would have said lesbian and the romans would have gotten lesbian big l when she meant lesbian small l <laughs> because lesbian small l didn't exist back then Never forget the time our uh, woman in the Greek world teacher kept referring to Sappho, uh, Sappho's writing being about close female friendship. Oh, Christ. Yeah, I always forget about that. I've blocked it out. <laughs> We're all sitting there like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Ugh. Oh, for the record, man. for anybody who's listening, Sappho liked to fuck girls. In conclusion. In conclusion. Um, oh, I also man. just want to shout out the line about uh, where the doctor is like, speaking as a former Vestal version second class, which implies either that there was a whole second class of Vestal virgins who were, had penises. I'm not going to say were men. The doctor has some gender. Or <laughs> uh, that there is 
there's like an unknown previous Doctor Regeneration where they had a vulva and were busy being like were fucking went to Rome and were a vessel virgin for a while. See, here's the thing: is Chris <laughs> Chibnall uh, set Doctor Who chronology on fire, and now there's infinite possible Doctors, so it, this could be canonically true. Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> and I also, but I also really want to imagine one of the earlier Doctors just, like, being a vessel virgin. Yes, that would be very funny. So, you were saying about how this sort of, like, could is kind of like generic in terms of that it could be set between any two sort of like empire and invaded country yeah yeah but this has very specific like connotations in the uk given the relationship between scotland and the rest of the uk Mm. (laughs) so this episode i think is actually a little bit more political than we would view it in um america especially since or in canada as well. I don't know why I said America. You're in America. I'm, I'm not. In America. North um, America. Yes. Um, uh, especially, like, I don't know where this is temporally in relationship to the Scottish independence vote, <laughs> but I don't think it's that far off. So um, the question of, like, Scottish, uh, like, individuality and Scotland being invaded is actually, I imagine, might have stepped on some people's toes. Um, and it is also worth noting that, like, both Peter Capaldi and the showrunner Stephen Moffat are Scottish. So, mm-hmm. um, well, I don't know if this episode was written by a Scottish person. It wasn't written by Stephen Moffat. Um, that I'm sure Stephen Moffat certainly has some feelings about Scotland. And so does Peter Capaldi, I'm yes. sure. Yeah, well, and so, I mean, so that that means that the episode has some political valence in its context. That doesn't mean that plot-wise it couldn't have been set any old time. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, you're totally right. Um, it's another uh, colonialism TM situation. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and, like, I, again, I think, I mentioned this with the fires of Pompeii, I think that the linguistic stuff in this episode is great. There's some jokes about Latin speaking latin with the translation circuit but it actually kind of pays off not just as a bit it's like no like the picts are speaking latin and the romans are speaking pictish and we're all under and you know we're all understanding each other and there's specifically a line that like about how when everybody can understand each other everyone just kind of sounds like children to each other that <laughs> Which I think is, like, you know, there's an implication about, like, innocence and people just being people when you can actually speak to them on their own terms, as it were, or on your own terms, that that everybody can be understood. Um, That is very poignant. Like, it's actually, it's an episode with a good moral, rounds off nicely. But um, as far as that stuff goes, the sort of colonialism TM subplot. I will say the sort of low-key condemnation of the natives for doing absolutely anything they could to fend off the invading army is, like, kind of bad. Like, yeah, uh, you guys fucked up by daring to do absolutely everything within your power to try to prevent yourselves from being fucking conquered and murdered by the colonial power at hand. Like, mm. Yeah, I... 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's also, like, the we're all, you know, we're all friends in the end sort of thing that is, you could definitely, like, interpret it in a way that's like, okay, well, this is certainly putting two groups of people on equal levels, in which case one is the invader and the other is the invaded. That being said, these are literal children. Neither group is actually responsible, like, for what's going on. Um, well, of course. I mean, yeah. Like, and, the point and is so, that these are people who are not responsible for the conflict. However, it's not the best handled as far as that stuff goes, in my opinion. No, it it could have been better, probably. Um. I mean, certainly. But, like, I understand the point that they were making about how, like, we... Everybody is a victim of the conflicts in which they are obliged to be involved by their national affiliations, um, even those who are technically the aggressors. But, like, yeah, I just I just think that, like, coming away from the episode, I was a little like, uh, this ain't it, Chief, as far as, like, that went. It was nice. It was heartwarming. I just think that it was, like, we are going to peddle some nice heartwarming shit to, like, overwrite the fact that we... Basically, we're like, the Picts shouldn't have defended themselves because they fucked everybody over by doing so. Like, ah, uh, mm, I don't know. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, I like, it is what it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it, in conclusion, the episode is fine. It's yeah, fine. the episode is fine. I I did enjoy this episode. It was like fun to watch. Um, I yeah. I am like kind of more inclined to go back and watch some Capaldi now because I I don't know. So here's my problem with Stephen Moffat Doctor Who is that Stephen Moffat was involved in it. Yeah, this is the thing. Is like unfortunately <laughs> is everything problem. is just inflicted with Stephen Moffat whenever he touches it. Disease. Yeah. Um. I mean, the thing is, is there are bits and pieces that aren't as inflicted with Stephen Moffat, um, and also bits and pieces where it's not so bad, the Stephen Moffat disease. Um, but it's a shame, because I do actually like all of the characters, I think, largely, and all of the actors. Yeah, I, I fully left out the weird plot shit that happens at the end of this episode from the recap, because I was like, I don't know what the fuck's going on, and I don't care. Oh, was there something with Missy? I watched this like yeah. literally like a month ago, so I don't remember. Oh yeah, there's like a there's like a thing with Missy, but I fully I missed the beginning, like most of the beginning of that plot line, and I don't know what I don't know anything about her or what the fuck's going on. Don't tell me. I might eventually watch it, but I also <laughs> don't care. Um, yeah. So like, uh, anyway, there's like as usual, there's like a weird plot thing tacked on to the end that kind of spoils the situation because then it's like ah yes we had like a whole arc and a theme and everything and now we're gonna have some other shit for five minutes yeah. and then which the episode is, will end which is like which uh, is like that's like writing. prime it's prime Stephen Moffat disease he does it I, th I believe in seasons six he I think he does it in every season except maybe for nine but that's because of the way nine is structured. Um, nine's like a bunch of two-parters. It's kind of weird. Um, but yeah, no, he does it most seasons. Is at the end of the episode, he's like, here is the overarching plot on a platter and you have to deal with it for five minutes. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's what happens in the God Complex too, is like, 
we're going to have this whole thing wrap up with the Minotaur and then we're going to have some plot for five minutes. And it's like, ugh. I was yeah. almost feeling good about the like themes TM in this episode. And now I'm like, blah. <laughs> anyway, it's just bad writing. So I do have some like overarching comments to make about this. If you are, we don't have anything else to say about um, the Eaters of Light. Yeah, go nuts. Um, I do have 35 minutes until somebody comes over. So yeah, be quick. I, I mean, okay, so here's what I'll say is we have three episodes that deal with their classical material quite differently. Fires of Pompeii is fundamentally an episode. It's like a classic Doctor Who episode in that it takes a a super well-known historical event and decides that actually it was aliens the whole time. Eaters of Light is also more or less in that mold, except it takes a mysterious historical event and decides that actually it was aliens the whole time, uh, but is more successful, I think, at, at developing a theme related to the history at hand. Whereas Fires of Pompeii has to decide that the eruption of Pompeii was a significantly more bad human event than it actually was like yes it was a natural disaster but like 20,000 people did not die in Pompeii they had to make it way worse in order to develop the theme that they wanted to develop I mean it's also just the monster is stupid <laughs> it's a stupid monster the monster is stupid I mean to be fair the monster in Eaters of Light is also pretty stupid oh it eats light okay it, it looks less terrible. And also, like, in the Eaters of Light, nobody's shot out of a volcano in a rock. This is the thing, is, like, Fires of Pompeii is, like, a silly classical reception episode. It's just, like, they're just, like, having a fucking ball doing some campy bullshit. The Eaters of Light is a sincere reception that actually kind of deals with some of the implications of the history in a, I think, in a more effective way. And then... Mm -hmm. God Complex is a really shallow reception. Like, they don't really... I mean, I have drawn a connection between kind of concepts of faith. I, I could I could do some fucking deep-ass, like, motherfucking literary analysis bullshit to connect the, like, theme of faith to the myth of the Minotaur, and there's maybe some stuff there. But truthfully, it is a separate theme from the myth in the way that the myth is presented. They don't really use any details of the myth very effectively. It's basically just like, we needed a monster. It's kind of in a maze. Let's make it a minotaur. It doesn't even really look like a minotaur yeah. because they didn't want to, they weren't interested in developing the monster. They were developing the theme. So yes. I will be interested to see if Doctor Who, they haven't done very many classical episodes is the thing. No, they haven't. They have not gone to classical antiquity very many times. They haven't even done, like... Like, they haven't done it in, in Atlantis, which vastly shocks me. Because to me, the sinking of Atlantis seems like a perfect Doctor Who episode. But maybe, maybe they think... Because, you know, obviously, like, it's fucking fake bullshit. Which means that it would be a great thing to be like, yeah, aliens did this. But... Yes. Maybe maybe they're too afraid of poking the conspiracy theorist hive. I, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want to con 
poke the conspiracy theorist hive either if I didn't have to. Which, you know, I can respect. But essentially what that means is that in a lot of ways, like, and, and this is the thing is Doctor Who, despite being a show nominally about a time traveler, is actually fundamentally more about, like, space aliens. And so they aren't on a general basis that interested in engaging with time periods. And no. since they seem not to have latched on to any particular, they, they do historical figures from time to time and they will develop the idea of a person in history. Um, there's like, to me, the quintessential one will always be like, to me, the peak, like, we are going to do an episode that develops a historical figure is always going to be the Agatha Christie episode. Oh, really? Because to me, to me, it's Girl in the Fireplace. I don't even remember who that one's about. <laughs> that's that's the Mary, that's the Marie Antoinette episode. I mean, it's also a great example. I, I just always forget who the fuck that one's about. Yeah, because the Agatha Christie episode is like, I think people like try to pretend it doesn't exist because there's the giant wasp in it and people are like, what the fuck? Yeah, because um, it's weird and campy, but, like, it's not... It's an episode that is, like, that it it deals with Agatha Christie's reputation. And, and I mean, that and the Vincent Van Gogh episode are both, like... We're gonna do an episode about a person and about, like, a person as who they were, but also them as the originator of a historical legacy, which is, like, they haven't latched on to a person in Greco-Roman antiquity yet. No. Also, correction for myself, I realized I said Marie Antoinette. It's Madame de Pompadour. It's not Marie Antoinette. Oh, I it's think not that's Marie wrong. Antoinette. Okay. No, I am I am stupid in okay. conclusion. I, um, yeah, I have no idea. Um, I but have, yeah, because th- that one is the one that comes to mind because that's like a really famous episode. Like that's one, whereas the Agatha Christie episode is very much to the side. Like it's not one a lot of Doctor Who fans like talk about all the time. Whereas like Girl in the Fireplace is it like in terms of like general Doctor Who fandom is one that's like talked about a lot. And I guess the thing is, is too, it's a bit of a less well-known historical figure, but it does like very much develop her. So I think that's yeah. like maybe why your brain doesn't go to it, but it is like... Yeah, and, like, the reason, one of the reasons I think of the Marie, that, sorry, the Agatha Christie episode is because, like, it engages with her as, you know, her legacy, but also, like, it engages with her work on a footing because it it makes it a parlor room mystery. Like, the episode is a parlor room mystery, yeah. which is what yeah. Agatha Christie wrote. So I think that there's a certain kind of interesting thing that they try to do in that episode to, like, engage with a person's legacy. And they just haven't really done that with anything or anybody from, like, ancient Greece or ancient Rome. And, like, that's... Or even, like, ancient Egypt or Persia or, you know, like, they just haven't touched on it. And... Which is kind of wild to me, given how wide open it is. Like, it's almost as good as the far future insofar as, like, you can make up a lot of shit and, like, have people be like, well, that's not really... Like, the thing is, the Fires of Pompeii episode is like, okay, the fucking volcano exploded. And, like, we know enough about it to know that there's certain inaccuracies. But it's so far in the past that it's kind of like, well, we don't have so many records. And, like, what you know, like, it's... It's kind of like, sure, fucking, it was aliens. It's like a fun, it's like kind of a fun throwaway, like, we're just gonna do something funky with a period of history, and we're not insulting anybody's national pride by doing it or anything like that. Which... <laughs> I do love, sure, it was aliens as a, as a, like, writing room. They're like, what should we do? And they're like, well, 
Pompeii could be. It could have been aliens. And they're like, okay, sure, we'll do that. Yeah, which, like, <laughs> damn, bitch, all right. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think that, I mean, and, like, Doctor Who only has so many episodes in a season. And they are working on you know they 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 want to do funky aliens and far future and like you know sci-fi tech shit as well they tend to only do like a couple of historicals in every season and they often set them in periods that are easier to costume and build sets for because yeah they don't have a budget um so i do understand i do understand um why they haven't done a lot of stuff i just i do think it's it's unmined um for stuff because it's also like it's so ripe for the kind of classical reception that i think is the most inoffensive as it were where it's just like we are not pretending to be accurate like of course we're we're not fucking pretending to be accurate there's aliens (laughs) yeah I mean, I think the one thing is that sometimes you skirt a little bit close. Like, this is not maybe a thing you'd want to do anything regarding ancient Egypt, because that all of a sudden becomes big problem. Yeah. Yes. So I think there's some stuff that they should stay away from, that they have stayed away from. Although, mind you, there is there is Pyramids of Mars. Wait, is it Pyramids of Mars? Anyway, ignore me. That's a different episode. Anyway, um, yeah, there's some stuff that... Like, you know, you don't want to be saying it was aliens who built the pyramids. That would be bad. Well, yeah, this um, is the thing. But... Is you, I think that they would have to be careful not to attribute any of the accomplishments of an ancient civilization to aliens. But mm-hmm. as they do with Pompeii, as they do with the disappearance of the, the Ninth Legion, I think it's fine to attribute the, like, tragedies of uh, an ancient civilization to aliens, especially when they're kind of mysterious. Like, I want to fucking, like, I want, like... I don't know. I want like a Bronze Age Collapse TM episode. Oh my god. Oh my I want to, you know, like that's what I mean. But like, that's, uh, but, Bronze Age Collapse was aliens. That's what I mean about, like, damn, why can't the sea peoples be aliens? And like, that's why I want like an Atlantis episode because like, sure, fucking the like ancient like North Africans built a perfect civilization and then aliens came along and sank it. It's like, ah, shit. <laughs> Not the aliens. Not the aliens. You know, I don't know. Like, I, I, I obviously, like, here's the thing is, like, as I was saying with this, the Eaters of Light, I don't think Doctor Who does a perfect job of dealing with themes sometimes, particularly around, like, colonialism and, you know, th- they haven't always, and, and the sort of high-handed, there's a certain amount of sort of high-handed Britishness in the way that the doctor does stuff a lot and that does mean that they would have to be careful to not be wildly offensive um and i i think that they probably just wouldn't be which means that in certain ways it's like okay well great keep your paws off my favorite ancient civilization however i also like i truly am shocked that they haven't done more and and also like I just want them to do more monsters from antiquity, but like in a fun, interesting way, instead of the stupid Minotaur thing. It just wasn't, it just wasn't well done. Yeah. I want some harpies. Yeah. I want some sirens. There is a siren episode, but it's like pirates. And so we decided not to do it because I was like, I can't talk about the golden age of piracy. Um, my friend who does, who knows things about this would crawl through my computer and strangle me. 
Also, it's worth noting the episode is really bad and everybody likes to pretend Curse of the Black Pearl doesn't exist. You mean Curse um, of the Black Spot? Oh, fuck. See, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I blanked out the name. <laughs> the Black I've Pearl is out Pirates the of the Caribbean. Yep, I'm just realizing that it's Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. I Basically, I think that Doctor Who, and I, I, I'll say one more thing, which is that I do think that Doctor Who has evolved in the way that they deal with antiquity. They started with like, None, none of this matters. Pompey was aliens. Who gives a shit? We don't need to engage with antiquity on a way, on a level that is more than jokes. Um, and then they were like, I don't know if that, we, that seems wrong, but we don't have time to do res- time or budget to do research. Let's just do something really shallow and maybe we'll make a vague gesture at some details from the story. And then they have reached a point where they were like, no, if we're going to do this, let's like do it right. So they kind of seem to have circled back and, and they, they actually seem to have done research on like Roman culture and society and engaged with some of the more interesting aspects of like differences between Roman cultural mores and modern ones. And like details about how, like shout out to this episode for being diverse. I mean, you made a brief mention of it, but Eaters of Light is quite a diverse episode. The Romans are, there are like several Romans of color. Um, One of them gets murdered immediately. F in the chat. Um, However, uh, like there is another one. (laughs) There is more than one black Roman. There is an Arab looking Roman, which is like true and accurate and like probably the most accurate diversity that we've seen in any fucking Roman thing that we've looked at so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so shout out to Dr. Who for that one. And and they do seem to have been more earnest in engaging on equal footing and just in general with kind of culture, cultural shit and like not relying on like, oh, we're just a campy fun show to like play off not having fucking done their due diligence. Yeah. So, Yeah. I think Doctor Who's gotten better with time, is what I'm saying. Yes, yes, I I would agree. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. And if you'd like to support our podcast, you can find us at patreon.com slash classicallytrainedpod, where we also post extras and outtakes. Our next episode will be on the TV show Ancient Apocalypse. As always, be well and do not under any circumstances do as the Romans did. <laughs>